0: and it's everything you need to make a quality podcast all in one place. So, what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to get started. Frida Goma is the founder and CEO of Kisa LLC. Frida is an entrepreneur and ex investment banking professional who has worked in multinational and leading investment institutions in London, New York, and Cape Town. She has experience in establishing successful business initiatives, as well as managing investment funds. This includes her role as a venture capitalist for an award-winning team at Close Brothers Group UK and African investment consultant at Nile Capital Management based in New York, Frida. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of Where's the Funding Podcast with our guest, Frida Izingoma. Before we get into the episode, um, I would like to shout out Endgame, a strategy company in Abuja, Nigeria. Endgame is an integrated strategy, technology, marketing, and creative agency that has been a great friend to podcasts. If you are looking for a strategy and marketing company to help you with your business, check them out at endgamehq.com. Now, let us get into the conversation with our wonderful guest, Frida Ezingoma. Frida, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you for having me.
0: You are so welcome. How about you go ahead and tell our guests a little bit about your background in investment banking? And we'll start from there and go into all the other wonderful things that you have done and are now doing.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah. So my background um, is in I did economics at university. And um, at some point I thought it was a natural fit to get into banking. Um, I was lucky enough to 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 get onto the graduate program at Citibank in London. Um, But what was great about that program is that I got to experience different parts of banking and it's the investment banking side that really um, excited me. So after I went to do my master's in economics, I knew that I wanted to get back into investment banking in in a way that um, actually would be more on the analytical side, which is what I was used to with economics. so, you know, at that time, it was quite difficult because there were barely any, um, you know, black people in, in the city in London at that point. So I had no connects whatsoever. But what I did do was um, apply for uh, um, various programs and got um, to work for a company called CCF, which is one of the largest uh French banks, French investment banks, and I started my career off um, basically in the aerospace and defense sector as an analyst, um, which was which was quite a feat at that time, um, uh, covering. Companies like BAE and Boeing, and uh, I got quite excited about it. But the analytical side still interested me very much. And uh, two years into that, I was uh, called out by Close Wealth Management, which is one of England's um, largest wealth management banks, um, to go onto the venture capital side and small cap uh, equity side. Um, I jumped at the opportunity, um, worked for an incredible team uh, running VCTs, uh, small cap equity portfolio. We had a special situations portfolio. Uh, Did that for close to eight years, learned so much, um, really looking and working with entrepreneurs that, that did, some of them did phenomenally well on the small cap market. And at some point, I really wanted to move to Africa and uh, see what the opportunities were there in the banking side. And at that point, you know, I was lucky enough to um, get called up by someone at Investec Asset Management. Um, they had a London division. Um, and at the time, um, uh, there was they were looking for a portfolio manager for their Africa portfolio that covered literally the whole of Africa, excluding South Africa. So got talking to them, got the position pretty quickly, and uh, packed my bags and moved to Cape Town. Never been to South Africa before, but very excited about getting involved uh, with the Africa Equity team, and uh, and run that portfolio. It it allowed me to travel around Africa more than ever before, and really understand what the Africa investment environment was about. Um, and what did you learn? I learned that there's lots of work to do, (laughs) that's one thing, Um, but it made me very proud of of what the development was in Africa. Because when you're sitting on the sort of Western UK side, you see, you know, you're always been taught about what Africa's not achieving, you know, what Africa needs to do. And when you're working, when I was working within this portfolio and really talking to chief executives and, you know, the the executive boards of some of these really large companies, whether it was telecoms or even um, Sugar, uh, or banks, um, they they all talked about the strategy they had for their own regions within Africa, but also within the whole of Africa. And it, it got me excited about what the possibilities were in Africa and what people have been doing and what people are doing to literally um, push the development of Africa.
0: What did you notice as some major differences between what you were doing before in Europe and what you were
1: seeing on the ground when you got to South Africa? And in terms of the portfolio management, the, the listed equity, yeah. one thing that I was, the, the main thing which struck me when I got there was how, what I found with when when you're looking at sort of UK, because it's sort of, you know, you get more advanced in industries and technologies etc um there was more of a voice for smaller companies within the uk whereas in africa The immediate thing that struck me is that you're dealing with very large companies some of them have been traditionally family owned uh been in the family for years and and then it's sort of succession and then you get the 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 children owning the companies um so much larger companies were successful within Africa so yeah you have that large company structure and then you have these tiny sort of micro companies um people starting um a lot of it is is you know it's Within the great area of trade, whether it's a, a woman deciding to start, you know, a hair salon or a market trader, so there was this huge gap. There was not much of sort of the middle ground in terms of companies. Um, so mid cap wasn't as as big a thing as it is in the UK or the US. Whereas in you know Africa, it was either very large cap or very very micro cap. Well, based on your
0: experience. What what needs to happen to help to build up that mid-cap space? Because we know that there are lots of sort of small or small SMEs operating yeah. at a smaller scale. And yeah. then you have the big sort of you know family run businesses that have been around for a long time. Yeah. There's that gap in the middle. How do we bridge that gap or do some yeah. more pipeline development so that some of those smaller companies that do exist can scale
1: up. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with funding and support, being perfectly honest. And I say that as an entrepreneur that started a business within Africa, you know, at the micro cap level, literally from a piece of paper and grew that, is that a lot of it's about funding and support. I think with that, because you can't scale a business to the way you want it to scale, unless you have that funding and support. So funding is one thing, yes, we need to invest more in the small cap opportunity. I know everyone's looking at unicorns and and you know and, and all the startups and it's great, but there are people there that have existing businesses, they've proved their business model, they know who their customers are, um, that are lined up for incredible growth if they have the right team, so, right, right, executive team that can come on board. So, when we're talking about support, that's very important. There's a lack of that in Africa, and you get a lot of like smaller companies and, and you know uh, entrepreneurs literally treading that ground themselves, you know, um, they need more support in terms of a team, but also routes to market as well. And that's what an executive team can do. But if we create the pipe, a greater pipeline for routes to market, then we can move companies from small cap to mid cap much easier. And then obviously, the funding behind it is what really will make the difference. When you're working within, you know, as an entrepreneur, what I saw is that, although I was approached by a few venture capital firms, what they wanted was basically to own my idea. They didn't want to help me facilitate growth within the market i could see the growth i literally lived the growth you know i could identify where my customers were what they needed i could even at some point really identify what stuff i needed to grow the business but when i was a- approached by va- uh, various venture capital companies they uh were more about oh we just want your big you know your big customer your big um Uh, Supply your big uh, uh, customer base we want this we want that rather than saying okay we come in we see your vision what do you need in order to facilitate the growth of that vision so so what a lot what happens is you don't you then fear the possibility of growing past what you feel you're capable of as an entrepreneur in africa So when when you want that funding, that funding has to come with explicit support for your vision. And I think that will make the difference in terms of growing the smaller micro cap to the mid cap within Africa. Frida, you
0: mentioned that you're an entrepreneur yourself and that you started a venture from micro. So from the very beginning. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your own entrepreneurship journey and what you learned from that.
1: Yeah. Um, Many things. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I decided um, um, to be an entrepreneur and that was mainly because I was inspired by other entrepreneurs. You know, I'd met them when I was running a a venture capital trust and um, always loved their passion for their business. And, you know, there's always, I think, I mean, I think everybody has an idea they think would flourish if they were given the chance to. Um, But how I came into it was not having this idea for a very long time when I moved to to uh, South Africa. And that's the beauty about Africa is, you you know, if you come from outside, you see lots of opportunities of, of businesses that you could actually place within that market that you believe would grow. So the, what I identified was something that I missed doing myself. I missed getting my eyebrows done. And, um, you know, and I had a colleague of mine uh, take me to do my, to get my eyebrows threaded in various sort of um, beauty um, beauty places but mostly spas and, and people's houses and I thought well surely there's an easier way to do this and just before i left London brow bars had started to become a really popular thing so as I you know I, I still had my job and I thought well this I think this could work and when something really keeps you up at night it means you should try it you know and um, so I found my first employee uh, of Gumtree and uh, I uh, wrote sort of like a mini business plan it was about 10 pages it wasn't too long and what I wanted to achieve within that and um, I invited friends around for a couple of evenings um, um, to test the service because it was a service business they absolutely loved it I then found somewhere to uh, to have the employee basically doing the service and 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 handed out leaflets to the market in the local area within Cape Town. And that became very popular. So at that point, I quit my job and decided to be a full-time entrepreneur. Um, very scared, but very excited. Can we talk about what that meant to take
0: that risk to go from something that was sure it was a certain paycheck? You know, it yeah. was going to come yeah. every week or every two weeks, however you got paid. Yeah. yeah. and There was a certainty to it to move into the unknown, because I know one of the things that plagues entrepreneurs is that fear, yes. or people who are thinking about entrepreneurship, getting yes. out of the fear to plunge into the unknown, especially when you were in a very nicely compensated position right. to move into something that was uncertain. So tell us about how you handled that transition?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, if I, if I knew what um, I knew, if I, if a few years into it, I'd known what I would have, what I knew back then, I would probably have thought twice about doing it at some point because the thing is with entrepreneurs people feel they have to be 100% certain you if you are 100% certain likely you're never going to do it you just have to feel that energy and believe in your vision to do it it was a massive transition and my advice to anybody doing it after i you know i used to mentor um uh, young female entrepreneurs and one thing i would tell them is um is that just Make sure, one, you believe in your vision and your mission, um, but also make sure that you've got enough funding that you can actually live, because going from a very comfortable situation, which I was in with investment banking for a while, I was in it for 12 years, and then going to somewhere where There's absolutely nothing coming in. You have to make sure you can put food on the table and you have a roof over your head. Um, I was very, I'm very comfortable with numbers, and that's one thing about being in finance—you grow comfortable with numbers. So I made sure that I had funding for at least eighteen months. That was the important thing to make sure that I could actually pay my bills for eighteen months. There are obviously lots of and that's what you call runway. In in, in entrepreneurship, right? Making sure that you have enough of a runway so
0: that you have time to kind of cruise down and hopefully take off. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And then some people don't don't actually look at they think, oh, uh, my business will be, you know, it will have exponential growth within six months and, uh, and and then I'll be fine. So I only need six month pot the truth is likely it's never going to happen you know uh, i mean over 9 was it 90% of businesses fail within the first few years um and also one thing that 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 businesses don't they might be cash generative but it's likely you won't be profitable for at least 5 years and what does that mean it means that you're literally living within small means particularly if you have to employ a team you know most businesses do have to employ a team so if you have to employ a team remember leave Leaders eat lust. So you won't be paying yourself for a very long time.
0: Can you say that part again, Frida?
1: Leaders eat lust. Because
0: you have to make sure that you are feeding and funding that. the business before yeah. you can feed and fund yourself. Otherwise, the business is not going to take off because yeah. you literally be
1: cannibalizing the business for your personal benefit. Exactly. And a lot of what people don't understand is revenue is not profit. Revenue is not profit. There are costs that come after revenue. And by the time you pay costs, you might find out that you're loss making. So that even the idea of you then taking a salary is not viable. And also what a lot of young entrepreneurs or even older entrepreneurs don't realize is that unless you're paying yourself within the business, then you're actually not calculating the cost properly. Your salary, whether you're paying yourself a salary or not, should be included as part of the cost of the business for it to be viable. And and that transition process from actually earning a salary to going and relying on your own salary uh, is, is very, very difficult. And and that's one thing that entrepreneurs should be aware of. And I think that's actually the main reason why a lot of entrepreneurs fail, because they don't anticipate that actually the revenues that they thought would come in after six months actually probably come in after two years. And you haven't guaranteed yourself enough of a buffer to last through that period. How
0: much more difficult does that make it for you know, a young African entrepreneur who didn't have the financial stability behind him or her before yeah. starting a venture yeah. like you did. Yeah. How, what's your advice to someone like that? Who, yeah, is, they have a great idea that they believe in. So yeah. they have that there. Um, How do they get in the game without that access to funding and also access to The type of advice that you know because you were very learned in in at least in 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 markets and investment and finance before you started so for someone who is not coming from a privileged background like you did because that's privilege how how do they navigate yeah the early stages of entrepreneurship especially on the continent anywhere well anywhere in general right but especially on the, the continent
1: Yeah. I mean, even with with everything that I knew, I made mistakes, Michelle. So um, so the mountain is definitely higher for somebody that doesn't have that privilege, doesn't have a buffer of savings that I had to actually take me through that period. I mean, my advice would be if you really, really, really believe in what you're doing and your concept again and your vision and mission is to start small. Once you start small, there's a beauty in just starting to me. What I've found is there's a beauty in just starting. And once you start, you you then start seeing what the avenues start opening up as to where you should go, maybe in terms of actually uh, locating your business as well, who your client base is, and, um, and who the actual network should be so your your network might start within your local area and that's absolutely fine because your your client base within your is in within your local area because that's who you're catering to and it's once you do that because i always advise people to become a scholar of their own business and become a scholar of their industry and once you do that, you'd be surprised the people you meet that then say, I love absolutely what you're doing. That could be a client. Your clients, you know, then become your friends in inverted commas because you're catering to them they become your brand ambassadors they're out there talking about you and the more you get people talking also your
0: investors because they're putting money and (laughs) your investors exactly
1: Exactly. so you might not know anybody but you don't know who the people you're coming across know and then they will then recommend your business as well so you'll never You never know who's going to come and knock and say, wow, I see what you're doing. How can I help you? Or actually, I have, uh, you know, I have somebody that might be interested in what you're doing. Or, you know, I work with a various distribution channel that would be interested in partnering with you. So as long as you are so focused on what you do and doing it well. The people who are your clients or your suppliers then become the people that advocate for you in corners that you're not in, in rooms that you're not in. And that's what you should rely on too.
0: That's wonderful. So back to Brabar, tell us a little bit more about the evolution of of that. So you started it and how did it evolve? Is it still running or where are things with that now?
1: Yeah, so I started, um, I quit my job after six months of seeing that it actually it could be something that could be quite popular in South Africa. I did a lot of work on the markets um, to see um, basically how much South African women spend on beauty, and I saw that was quite large. Um, obviously, the market was obvious at that point. so oh, oh,
0: market research.
1: I did a lot of
0: the market Yes, where you can place yourself in the market in comparison to the services that are already being offered to women was an important um, piece of
1: research to do. It was an important piece of research. And before I quit my job, I did a trial. So I did a trial for six months. So the investment I made was very, very small. And what I wanted to see in that trial was, would it be popular? If so, Why? Who is my client base? I always tell people that you should know more about the customer than they know about them. Than they know about themselves. And I was introducing a new service. Threading was not popular at that time in South Africa. A lot of people didn't know what it was. Um, they were doing women were doing waxing. So a lot of it was an education piece. So I created a lot of content around threading and would actually then hand that out. Oh, here, do you want a leaflet about threading? Do you want to know its benefits? Do you know, and and all of that? Do you want to know more about your eyebrows? And that was a value-added service that I felt when I did launch the business that I could offer but I only learned about that during the trial period and that's what made me confident about going to the next stage and leaving my job and starting it full-time. Um, So, yeah, so um, after doing the trial and getting my friends, you know, use your friends, your friends, you know, if your friends are your customers, then encourage them, you know, to come and get the service done or use your product and give you feedback. I was lucky enough to have a group of friends that were very enthusiastic about using the service and they gave me lots and lots and lots of feedback. So I managed to trial a few things before I actually quit. So we then launched this huge beauty fair in Cape town. Um, And at that time, and I saw how popular it was, we were actually the most popular um, beauty booth uh, within the whole fair and people could not believe like, what are you doing over there? And luckily, one of those people who were curious was one of South Africa's largest retailers so um the lady who was running the uh the booth for them came and said would you be interested in coming to talk to us um, about having a concession within our stores um and uh they were nationwide which was exciting so within a week uh, i went and uh took prepared my presentation sat down and they said you don't need to present to us we're very sure that we want your services within our stores Um, So we went through the whole process of onboarding um, the beauty bar, um, the brow bar, and within, within months we had grown from our first stage of having one brow bar to having four, and then over eight years we went to having 21 brow bars across the country. So it grew quite strongly. Um, Sometimes it grew beyond, I realized what the bottlenecks were as as the retailer was asking for more uh, uh, brow bars. And one of the biggest bottlenecks was actually having enough staff members to staff uh, um, those brow bars and actually know what our services were, the quality of our services, the way we did them. Because one thing that I was very clear about was rather than building it as a salon is to build it as a concept and a brand.
0: Why was finding enough uh, qualified staff so difficult? Because I know in entrepreneurship, that becomes a problem when the business gets to the stage where you have to start hiring people. How do you know who are the right people to hire? And also for for some entrepreneurs that have never led anything before, you've been in positions of leadership. So you at least had some experience around leading a team. Yes. What are some of the challenges with, learning how to lead a team and trying to find the right staff.
1: Yeah, that is actually one of the one of the biggest challenges was actually learning how to manage a team. And, you know, you can be in all the leadership positions you want. Um, you could have managed various teams in different industries. But one thing people don't realize is that they, there are some leadership management skills that are transferable, but you always have to adapt them to the industry that you're in. And that was the biggest challenge I had because not only was I in a culture that was not familiar um, because I'm not from South Africa and I hadn't been living there a long time is that um, I also was in an industry that frankly, I didn't know anything about. Um, So I had to learn what those nuances were. How do I manage a team of beauty therapists? What sort of management team do I need uh, below me to manage them as well? And when you're growing a business across a country you know in different regions of the country that in itself has its own nuances as well um so it it was a web I have to say but but I I had to make mistakes and allow myself to make constant mistakes as well because you do when you're growing a team you you live your business every day you know exactly what you want but actually Educating people to the level that you have and 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 hoping that they have the same passion is very, very difficult. And one thing I learned about an entrepreneur is no one has the same passion as you for your business. And to expect people to have that is actually not fair. You know, and uh, and realizing that was was one of the once I realized that I could actually lead a team better because my expectations of them became very different.
0: How did you deal with the challenge of now finding the right staff? Did you have to train people? Yes. What did you have to do? Yes
1: yeah so I had to train people so one of the things was um, with threading So threading wasn't very popular in South Africa which meant that it wasn't taught in beauty schools uh, there were only a few people teaching it um, so what we decided to do was start a training centre for, for threading and actually teach people and then teach them uh, within our way of doing the services um, and then employ them with the step to employing them as well because when you realise that your biggest bottle actually is staff and uh, you've got a a a, a partner that's saying we want to open three branches within the next three months and you're thinking wow where do I get these people from um I came across that came up against that problem a lot so I decided to change the strategy and actually start training my own staff from scratch and and looking for people that were passionate about beauty training uh, letting some of my staff that were the best at what they did then go for train the trainer courses so they could learn how to be trainers within the business which made them then um, uh, literally the pipeline to management level so we made it much easier by training our own threaders um, and that way it allowed us to expand across the country a lot easier than 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 it would have been if we didn't go for that strategy um, in terms of finding management that was exactly the same thing one thing I was sure about because in in South Africa there are not that many opportunities you know for women particularly black women at a certain sort of socioeconomic level so for them to be able to afford some of these professional courses was virtually impossible and one thing that I was sure of when I started the business is that I wanted to promote from within So people who started with me as therapists also had the opportunity to become managers down the road. And in doing that, it meant that I I was very much open to getting putting them within professional training courses, uh, whether it was management, whether it was um, some sort of basic financing so that they could up their skills um, uh, or even sort of like even franchising skills, because the way the business worked with the different concessions is that they needed to understand how the quality um, needed to remain across the board. So I put I, I would obviously then select some of my uh, team members, some of my colleagues, and then put them within professional courses. Uh, whether it's management, they do have professional uh, organised. Managed like courses in within South Africa. So, anyone who was lined up to be a manager went on those courses as well. Um, as well, we had in house training because of my all the leadership that uh, courses and experience that I had. I also did in house training with them, and a lot of that was on basic entrepreneurship skills as well. Because, one thing you learn as a, as, as a very, very small business in order to grow. Your team also has to think of themselves as kind of entrepreneurs at the same time because they are building a business within your business. We're dealing with clients all the time. How do they build their own client base so that the and by building their own client base the company grows as well yeah, especially if you're a pioneer in a franchising model where you know it
0: each 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 booth or beauty concession could potentially be independently owned yes yeah so where is that business now because i want to get into talking about what you're doing now but i want to close the loop on what happened with the bra bar yeah
1: so the brow bar, at some point when I wanted to come back to to England, I knew that the brow bar couldn't function in the way that it functioned without me being there. So what I did is I pared it down. We left the retailer we'd been with for for eight years Um, and then we made it an independent brow bar business and there are many reasons for that Um, one of the one of the greatest lessons I learned is always grow your brand independently before you grow it within another brand Um, so this making it independent allowed us to really look at the brand that we had developed within ourselves we had a very loyal customer base over the years Um, most of my original stuff was still working for the company at the time so um, we developed an, a further concept um, an independent concept that would that lay that was within the big cities within South Africa and uh and then had the team that was managing that um i came back to england and at some point realized that i couldn't manage the business from here so Within the last year, the company has moved on. It, I sold it to a consortium of staff members and beauty entrepreneurs that wanted to take it forward. So that's where it is. I still advise for them now and again. They still ask me questions. Um, and I was strategically advising for them in the first sort of six, seven months. Um, but obviously, the business that I'm doing now takes up a lot of my time. So the brow bars are still there. and um, But they they're being independently run by other people.
0: Thank you for sharing your entrepreneurship story and the lessons that you learned as you went along the way, even though you came in with a lot of information already, more than some people might know when they start. But the thing is, it's a journey, no matter where you start. Journey. journey. (laughs) So now let's talk about Kisa Art. Yeah. Why art? And what is the big problem that you are trying to solve with Kisa Art? I know with the bra bar, you were trying to give women fabulous eyebrows yes. that they could get without having to go to someone's house or to go to a spa. So with Kisa Art, what's the problem that you're solving?
1: Yeah, so KISA art is uh, um, within the modern and contemporary African and diaspora art sector. Um, it is solving a problem. So thank you very much for saying that. And I actually think as an entrepreneur, you should be solving problems. If your business is not solving a problem, then um, really, you know, it has, n- it, you'll find that it has, n- it doesn't have much use. And. Um, The Kisa Art is basically focused, we are art investment specialists, and we are focused uh, mainly on two sides. So we have an an art fund, and we're going to have other art investment vehicles along with that, um, that's focused on uh, modern and contemporary African and diaspora artists. But the other side of the business is focused on the ecosystem. And and when I say the ecosystem, I mean the art ecosystem in total within Africa and the diaspora within our communities, and how we can basically create a sustainable um, art ecosystem that creates a kind of visibility and legacy of African and diaspora art. Um, So it's solving the problem. Because right now, what we have within the African and diaspora art industry is we have this beautiful wealth of artists um, uh, across Africa in the diaspora, doing incredible things, um, even though the visibility is lacking, the artists are there. And and then what we have on the other side is a distribution channel. Um, By that, I mean galleries, we have art fairs, we've got auction houses, mainly um, um, the majority of them are outside of our communities, uh, both in Africa and the diaspora, but they are there what we need is a stronger infrastructural uh, uh, base around it. And that includes institutions. So it could be educational institutions uh, that teach art or focus on art. It could be museums. Um, could be art funds you know uh, corporate uh, investments in art it could be shipping anything from with logistics insurance Um, also in terms of archives as well Uh, so we need a stronger we need a stronger ecosystem to support the development of the artists and the ecosystem in general so those are the issues that I'm focused on solving within the market. Um, in terms of investments, what the fund does is uh, it really um, the fund is focused on, on, on impacting the market as well. And by impacting is it will have a, a collection that will be used to create the visibility of both the artists and the market on the global world stage as well. So
0: Frida, who's the clientele
1: for the art fund.
0: And I know art can seem a little bit highbrow and unreachable to a lot of people who might not understand art, its value, the art world. They're like, I just don't get it. Yeah. Is there also an educational aspect that you're trying to do? Yes. And then my other question is, um, maybe I'll wait for that answer. This these these questions first, and then I'll come in with
1: the the next one. Okay. So the art investment vehicles are very much. I mean, for that they the 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 clients for that are mainly mainly uh, institutional investors. So it could be fund of funds, family offices, but also uh, collectors um, because you know, the art funds that we currently have available um, have a high ticket price. It's really for high net worth individuals. Um, but saying that some of the other work that we do do, because I I personally, uh, um, with a couple of other advisors, started something to series is trying to promote the the culture of collecting within our communities. Because as you rightly said, art is seen as highbrow, a lot of people don't understand it. And because they don't understand it, they don't see the value in it. Um, It's really trying to educate people on the fact that art is a viable alternative asset. You know, know, there there are all sorts of conversations I hear, you know, you should only collect art if you love it. Yes and no, you know, because, you know, we all have, we all might have different assets that we might not love, but we realize that they're valuable. I think there's room for everybody in this. So, so what I also teach is that you can start building a collection. I've been building a collection for 20 years. At that time, I love art, but I didn't know much about collecting art. So I'd buy what I love. I still buy what I love, but I'm focused uh, a lot more now on what's investable art, as well as at the same time. And we teach that we teach young collect young and older collectors, um, potential collectors, how to get involved in the market, but really have fun with it as well. So art is an investable asset.
0: Generally, yes. tends to appreciate. Yes depending on who the artist is and where the trajectory of their career goes. Now, how do you sort of teach or train the Black community in general about art and art collection as a wealth building strategy? Because, you know, we've heard from like some of the rich famous rappers that we might have heard of like Jay-Z or a Lil Wayne that actually have extensive art collections because you know when you move around a certain circle certain circles you learn a few things yes and (laughs) learn that art is a highly investable um, commodity asset that appreciates significantly and if you have assets if you have wealth and you can purchase art yes. that's a good place to put your money yes. so like how to then sort of disseminate that information out more broadly yes. as a method of um wealth generation for, yes. for black people but also it's expensive so yes. where where's the ground floor for getting in as an art collector if you are not already wealthy
1: yeah um, art is expensive, but then there's art that isn't expensive as well. And that's that's a sort of that's a common block that I hear, people saying, yeah, but you know, I have to probably start with twenty or fifty thousand dollars to get involved. When I started collecting, I would buy pieces for three, four hundred pounds. Um, at the time when I started collecting, it was, it was really difficult to find black artists to invest in. My portfolio is focused on investing in black artists. And, um, but I would go to, I would do it by going to various sort of um, shows. Um, and stumbling across shows, because I didn't even know how to get involved in the market enough for people to let me know when there was a show. I would go to um, art school final shows as well, because there you can discover new artists. Because a lot of these artists we admire, they went to art school. Most of them did, not all of them. Um, they went to art schools and, and then they got picked up by galleries at some point. If you go to art school's final shows, you find you could find pick up pieces of art because they're selling at that point for very cheap as well and you also get to meet the artists and really understand their work. Um, We're lucky in this day and age with social media a lot of artists are putting their work on social media so it's easy to get to know the artists as well and follow their work and ask them what their prices are. You don't have to start with a big budget. I was actually on a phone call to a friend the other day and we were talking about each other's collections, and um, and and you know, like, how do you know if an artist gains value? And there's an artist I invested in uh, two and a half years ago. I bought her works for two hundred pounds she's now selling for much 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 higher um, a lot of that's because you know I, I I buy what I like, but I also do a lot of work on the artists as well, and that doesn't cost money because you can google artists or you can you know email them and and get to know them and and know the trajectory of their career and then decide at that point w- whether you want to invest in so no you don't have to you know be a big ball in the industry by being able to afford a, a Basquiat or a Kerry James Marshall you can start at sort of the younger emerging artists end and and start investing from there and really actually keeping track of the artists as well and um, and, and and investing forward investing in them too which I think makes a difference to some artists.
0: What are some tips that you would give for the novice art investor who is trying to to figure out how to get in the game at whatever level they can get in the game.
1: Yeah I've got a few tips but one of the biggest tips I would say is burn some shoe leather always burn some shoe leather so when you burn some shoe leather by that I mean Going to exhibitions, going to local exhibitions. Um, you know, we'd all love to be able to go to Freeze, New York every year, or Miami, Basel. Um, but that is not necessary. I mean, particularly if you're in London or or even in Africa. So the, the, the big um, art cities in Africa obviously, Lagos um, um, is one, then Joburg and, and Cape Town have art fairs, uh, Marrakesh. Um, but but even within the smaller art art cities, you've got, um, I mean, Harare's got, got lots of art, Kampala does, Kenya does, uh, Addis does. Just find out what's in your local area and start getting to know the artsy there. Um, some artists that are lesser known also sell within cafes or restaurants. Um, If you can attend an art fair, do I would say that's the biggest tip because then you get to hear what's going on you get to hear which artists uh, are doing well, but you also get to see because you start to see the patterns as well. Oh, that artist appeared last year she's here again, you know have her prices changed? what's happening, you know you get to hear about, uh, you know what sort of. trends they are in the market, although I don't advocate following trends, you know, um, buy what you love and follow the artist. but you get to hear that because it then determines what's happening, you know, which voices are then prevalent in the art market then. And, And then you also start to build relationships with other collectors, and other gallerists. And that's important as well, because they'll also let you know what's happening in the market, and which artists that you should be looking out for within your portfolio.
0: Thank you for offering those tips. Now, the name of the show is Where's the Funding? And I know that you are raising funds for Kisa Art. Um, what, What can you share with our listeners who are entrepreneurs or are trying to raise funds for their business about the process of fundraising and sort of how to manage the process? Because I know that it can be a long road. So what are some fundraising tips that you can
1: give? Uh, fundraising tips and it's a difficult journey and I think that's one thing that I've learned is is that you need to accept it's a difficult journey and not be hard on yourself and I think you've mentioned something that, uh, that 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 people definitely need to look out for as well but 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 don't always bear in mind is that it's a long journey it's definitely a long journey um my my advice would be Um, I'm I'm very much enjoying this journey, but I also realize what the issues are in raising money. And then, you know, I always get I I have a great team around me um, that support me. So one of the great the greatest tips I would say is build a network of support, build a circle of trust around you, because even when times get hard on this journey, you can rely on them to give you advice, but also support and even open doors for you you know uh, your network is so invaluable anyway but on this journey it's it's like gold and treat it like gold don't don't be flippant with your network at all don't don't abuse your network at all always understand that that nurturing your network is absolutely vital because those are the people just like on, on any entrepreneurial journey that will speak for you in rooms that you're not in. And that could actually lead to funding in your business.
0: I like that. Now, can you give some tips on how to effectively network and not just meet somebody in yeah. two seconds later? Ask them. Yes. <laughs> Which is what a lot of people time do. I have to build a relationship really yeah. with them. Would you please? provide us some tips um, for, you know, entrepreneurs who are in that space where they're yes. looking to network, raise funds, how are some very, some more cool and sophisticated ways to go about relationship building within a network because it's really building it is about
1: building relationships and i think people don't realize i think i think one one thing that i've learned particularly in this covid where we haven't had the opportunities to meet people face to face we haven't had the opportunities to to sort of break that ice that you do when you're in person, you're doing it over a Zoom call, you might be doing it over a WhatsApp call even, uh, or back and forth emails, is, is one thing that I've learned is that, Networking is relationship building. And what does that mean? What I've realized it, it means to me is that you have to actually build a relationship. You know, there's, there's, and a relationship is give and take. It cannot be a one way thing. You have to understand as much as you should even focus. I focus on giving more than I'm taking. And if I feel I can give to someone, I will give it, you know, um, so that they feel, oh, wow, I could call Frida about this rather than me always saying, yeah, but aren't you going to introduce me to somebody? There could be somebody in my network that's absolutely, that could be invaluable to what they're doing, whether it's their business or their job. And I'm always willing to do that. Um, And I think that's important because if people always feel that it's an ask, they then see you as a burden. Um, But at the same time as well, you're not understanding that there's probably someone in your network that could do with the connection on the other side as well. So if you're constantly looking to create these beautiful loops at work, you then become an invaluable source to a lot of people as well.
0: Frida, wonderful advice. And we will end on that note unless <laughs> there is something else you would like to add.
1: No, just thank you so much, Michelle. I've really enjoyed having this conversation with you.
0: And I have enjoyed having you on the show and talking through your career arc. Yes. From in working as an investment banker to a startup entrepreneur to an art investor. It's been a wonderful journey and I've enjoyed exploring that with you and expressing that um, to the audience who is listening to this podcast. So before we go, I would like to thank our listeners. I hope that you got what you expected when you tuned into this episode. If not, let us know what you want to cover by completing a short survey in the show notes. So make sure you check out the show notes. If you would like to be a guest or a sponsor, please contact us at where's the funding at gmail.com. You can find us on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, stream, download, rate, review, share your favorite episodes, all that good stuff. And follow us on social media, on Instagram at Where's the Funding Podcast, and on Facebook at Where's the Funding Africa Edition. Also, follow your hosts, Michelle McKenzie and Lydia Nylander on LinkedIn. And Frida, where can we follow you on social?
1: So you can show you can follow me at Federis Ngoma on LinkedIn, and I'm also on Instagram. I post lots of art and and art articles as well. So if you're interested in in becoming a collector um, or literally just being an art enthusiast, then please follow me because I'm always updating uh, with information that's that's important.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for listening, and see you for the next
1: episode.